Welcome. You are listening to Engender, a production of the Choral Commons. The Choral Commons provides a space for singing communities to realize the liberatory potential of the ensemble as a site of radical imagining. We promote equitable artistic and organizational practices that harness the positive social impacts of participatory music making for the common good. My name is Brad Dumont, and I use he, him pronouns. I'm Nikki Manlove, and I use they, them pronouns. And you are listening to Engender, a series focusing on the wisdom of gender diversity in the choral practice. I want us to see us. I want to see us at every level of our field. I want to see us wherever we are called to be, in children's choruses and professional chamber choirs and song circles and university positions and K-12 general music classrooms and church gigs and everywhere in between. Welcome to the fourth episode of Engender. Yay! Yay! We're back! <laughs> We're back! <laughs> I feel like it's like hard to believe how much wisdom we've gotten to share already. And listening back each week, I'm reminded what a tremendous gift each of our guests is to our field. And this week is no exception. Uh, this episode of Engender focuses on the work of Eric Peregrine. Eric is the artistic director of the Northeastern Chamber Choir Ensemble Campagno, who we heard in the first episode, and the uh, director of the University of Arizona's Collegium Musicum, an early music ensemble. Eric is sort of unique among the people we've interviewed in that they work both in and outside of the academy. They're currently finishing their doctorate, and they bring a wealth of teaching experience, but they're also well-known for their role with Ensemble Campanio, which is a community arts organization that uses a very unique rehearsal model, which they'll talk about later in the episode. And in the very first episode of Engender, we heard Eric talk about their gender identity as an embodiment of juxtapositions and contradictions. So to start off this episode, we followed up on that by asking how this experience of juxtaposition and contradiction informs their work as a conductor. Here's Eric. While that's a specific reflection of my gendered experience, I think it's more broadly one of human experience. Um, I think that we all hold a plurality of truths simultaneously. And for me as a trans person, as a non-binary person, of course, that's, that's central to my humanity is that understanding of the vast plurality of truths that I hold. Um, but, but I think that that's something that can translate into anyone's life and specifically into, uh, into our musical work. Um, if we think about choral music as, I mean, to use the, the, the trope of music as a universal language, um, that's true on, on, certainly true on some levels, but there's also levels on which it's explicitly not, and that it, it is explicitly specific, culturally specific, specific to individual human beings' experiences. I mean, I think being able to hold the, I mean, again, to use this phrase, plurality of truths um, that coexist, um, understanding these these different levels um, that that permeate all of music, really, um, is, is central to my work as an artist. Um, I mean, I think for me, coming into my own as a, as a performer of sacred music, I think really embodies that, um, embodies that plurality as well, because I mean, I, I'm speaking about Christian, Christian sacred music, um, the typical Western classical choral stuff that has, that has come out of Christian and Catholic lineages. Um, for me, 
I, it's been a long journey to adoring that music um, because of the specificities of my own, uh, my own negative interactions with, with Christian organizations, Christian churches, um, the sort of American Protestant um, normalized Christianity um, as, a, as an oppressive force in my life. Um, but at the same time, I adore sacred music um, for its ability to speak to universal human experiences, um, to speak to these profound soul level longings um, and soul level joys and pains um, that, that permeate the human experience. Um, and I think for me, sacred music is such a vessel of contradiction in that way that 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 um, that larger universal layer um, of, of human experience is true, as is the transformative power of letting these words and this music come through your body and your voice and yourself, as is the complex and violent legacies that the Christian and Catholic churches have had throughout Western history um, as colonizing forces and as forces of violence. Um, and that truth is held simultaneously with the fact that singers in front of me have all had their own myriad experiences of interactions with Christianity, whether as a super uplifting part of their own faith tradition, as sort of an ambivalence maybe, or as, as negative oppression. Um, so I think this, this idea of being able to hold the whole plurality of, of a piece of music and of music as a thing more broadly um, is really central to my artistic to, to my artistic practice. I mean, none of these individual layers negate any of the others, but they do all help us to understand how we as very specific human beings can move through this art form in relationship with ourselves, with the music and with each other. It's interesting. I think that, yeah, the way that you're describing it, it sounds like, um, sacred music can be this really beautiful metaphor for transness. I'm thinking about um, last night in the, the first episode, which premiered yesterday, Mari has this really beautiful quote. Um, and she says, one thing that I love about my gender is that it can invite other people to be um, more introspective and more critical of their own identities. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. And I think that that's definitely a gift that trans people have to offer to the world is inviting people into deeper understandings of themselves and their own pluralities, like you said. Yeah. And when we think about our choral spaces, I think there's something so incredible about what that can offer because it allows our, if we think about our ensembles as reflections of the community they exist in, what happens to your community when it's truly self-reflective, when it's truly willing to be open about who we are and what we want and what we desire and what we feel? Um, and so to find that space by the exploring this this expression, um, I think is incredible. And I'm uh, just wondering if, Eric, in, in your ensemble companion space, um, like when you're in front of that group, how do you find yourself digging into conversations um, uh, culturally with the whole room? I mean, just setting context for discussion and in general and exploring. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a central component of the work that we do together. Um, for those of you who aren't 
super familiar with Ensemble Campanio, we have sort of an unusual model uh, in that we draw membership from the whole, the whole Northeastern region. Um, and rather than doing a, week, a weekly rehearsal, um, like one night a week, like, like many ensembles, uh, we set aside one weekend per month. Um, in pre-COVID times, at least I can speak to that, <laughs> uh, we were come together um, in a city that, that changes depending on the month. We try to um, hit most of the major areas of the Northeast to make travel a little bit, a little bit more equitable for our membership. Um, and we sing all day Saturday, we go out, have dinner, probably sing some more, go to sleep, wake up Sunday, do it again for another half of a day, and then go our separate ways for the next month until, until we come back together. Um, and that, that model really lends itself to a profound depth of relationship within the ensemble um, and the sort of intense retreat atmosphere that I think that, that lends itself so beautifully to contemplation and reflection because we spend such intense concentrated time um, working together and working specifically with, um, with pieces of music. Um, we we take we intentionally take time to talk about our pieces in rehearsal um not in a i mean sometimes in a me giving background information way but i mean more specifically um in a in a ensemble reflective way um where singers are invited to reflect on what this music and this text means to them specifically in that moment um what it can mean more broadly um, what it may have meant given the historical context that we have and how that, how that impacts um, their own experience of the music as singers. Um, I'm really interested in what each individual singer brings uh, when they walk in the door. Um, I think there's, there's an old sort of educational paradigm of you leave all your troubles at the door and then you just make music and then you leave. Um, but I I just don't believe that that's possible. And I don't think it's even desirable. I think it's really important that when we create music in communal spaces or even individually, but I work primarily in musical communities. Um, I think it's really important that we're able to bring our full selves, um, even the parts that maybe aren't so pretty, even maybe the parts, maybe especially the parts that are wounded um, and that are in need of, in need of air. <laughs> um, and so for me, creating space for intentional contemplation around the repertoire is an absolutely intrinsic part of, of our process um, because it, it, it builds up those human layers of understanding of what this music can mean um, in the abstract, what it can mean to people who we share it with. Um, and also it builds our own internal stories of who we are individually and together, and specifically what it means for us in all of our fallible myriad humanities to be making this specific music at this specific point in time. Um, I think for me, holding both the universal and the specific simultaneously is very important. When you think about yourself as a trans person, as a conductor, as an educator, and um, you know, and all of the other ways that you show up in our profession. Just some dreams that you have for 10 years from now, like what, what might be different and what might it look like to be a trans professional in 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I think for me as a start, that gender inclusive pedagogy is completely normalized. 
Um, it's so hard to have deep and nuanced conversations about transness in our field when we're still stuck having the same conversations about concert attire and language and things that, that really need to be deeply normalized in our pedagogies um, in, in order to make space for, for <laughs> richer conversations about what gender diversity can mean in our ensembles. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's a cis issue. That's an issue that cis educators have to take on themselves in their particularly in their own teaching practices, um, because they're they're the ones that that are going to model for the next generations um, of conductors and educators what normal best practices are. Um, so for me, that that's I mean that's one very concrete thing that I I hope can be a foundation that can be laid now, <laughs> um, because the roots of it have been laid for, for nearly a decade now, um, but we're still coming back to these same, to these same topics without much deepening. Um, so I, I, want us to, I want us to be better, and I want us to be better now, um, but especially better 10 years from now. Um, I mean, really, my, my dreams for trans justice in our field are, are rooted in my dreams for the world. Um, I mean, I, I dream of a world where some completely hypothetical 20-something doesn't have to feel like they have to choose between their professional calling and living authentically. Um, I dream of a world where discovering your gender identity doesn't feel like a death sentence, but is a cause for real genuine celebration. I see a future where we're not systemically marginalized in every aspect of our existence, but instead where equity exists for us. I mean, just consider everything that trans people have accomplished, even with so much of our energy being spent simply on surviving within transphobic and bureaucratic and violent systems. I mean, imagine everything that could be created with that energy. Imagine how much richer trans lives would be and imagine how much richer the world would be. And our field is a microcosm. Imagine how that richness would, would permeate all of the work that we do in our choral, in our choral spheres. I want us to see us. I want to see us at every level of our field. I want to see us wherever we are called to be in children's choruses and professional chamber choirs and song circles and university positions and K-12 general music classrooms and church gigs and everywhere in between. I want to see our works performed by symphonic choruses and included in anthologies for music educators and studied in musicology seminars. I mean, personally, I. I want our field to be capable of holding me personally as an artist, a scholar, a teacher, and as a non-binary trans person, not positioning any of these as opposing or contradictory, not proclaiming some sort of miracle that I've somehow managed to make it this far, and certainly not reducing me to my work around trans inclusivity because I happen to be trans myself. I dream of moving through this career, able to focus on the work that I'm called to do and being wholeheartedly supported by this field in doing so. Amazing. Eric, thank you. Just a, a follow-up to that question. I'm thinking about um, this, I'm turning off like the, um, the heart of me and turning on like the brain of me um, because the heart of me is sort of disinterested in this question, but <laughs> the pragmatist in me um, knows that it's one that we should be asking in this, in this moment where 
people are beginning to have, you know, some sort of consciousness about uh, trans issues. Um, how do we invite those people to leverage their um, platform and their authority? Like if there was one thing that you could ask the president of ACDA or Chorus America or NCCO, whatever, um, what would you ask of them in this moment? I mean, I think, I mean, like, like I said earlier on in, in, in today's interview, be proactive about making the organizational changes that have we've been advocating for for a long time. Um, some people have, and the, the majority of leadership I, I don't believe has. Um, and I see that I see that because I don't see um, best practices posted in every um, in every professional organization. I don't see a support for trans educators specifically. Um, and, I, and I don't see the, the best practices that again have been developed over you know, the past decade plus um, being consistently implemented. Um, so number one, just, just make the changes, just do it now. Seek out the resources, seek out the information and just do it now. Don't wait until there's a trans person in your organization. Don't wait until a trans person brings something to your attention. We're constantly advocating for ourselves and you can take off some of that burden by just speaking up. It's probably going to be uncomfortable. That's okay. That discomfort is so small compared to what we navigate daily um, that it's, it's absolutely critical that cisgender people are being very proactive about making the organizational changes that, that we all know need to happen. I'd also like to engage on a more sort of philosophical level because it's, it's not just about doing the right things. That's very important. Please try to do the right things. Um, but it's, it's also about reframing, um, reframing and interrogating your own understandings of gender um, as a larger human experience. Um, I'd ask my cis colleagues to spend some time with your own gender and really interrogate it and ask, ask it what you ask what you can learn from it and how it got to be this way. Um, it's likely a more complex story than you think. You know, understand that trans people, we've we've always been here. Um, and that cis isn't normal and trans isn't other, but that these are all part of a larger human experience of gender. Um, some of you who know me may know that I love plants. I love gardening. I love being in nature. Um, and there's a, a concept, um, sort of a theoretical concept that was posed sometime, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, about Western, specifically American um, interaction with plants. Um, and this, this term is called plant blindness. And I, I acknowledge that that is, that is somewhat ableist and I might, suggest plant non-perception as an alternative. Um, but this idea that you know, we walk through the world and we're surrounded by plants, but most people don't really see them. Um, that there's, there's a disconnect between um, the diversity of grasses and trees and bushes and all of these different life forms and what we see unless we're really intentional about looking. 
um, that it's it's easier for us to see, oh yeah, big thing of green um, and not really consider it. And I think I've been thinking a lot about that in relation to the way that we, um, that American society at least understands gender, that it's, it's this rigid static thing um, that, you know, you, you might, you might see, you probably walk by or interact with on a, on a surface level, but that, um, that the same sort of non-perception of the actual diversity of gender exists in the same way that that non-perception exists for many of our interactions with plants. Um, but if, if you start to really practice perceiving gender deeply um, through, through observation of the world around you and through of, and of yourself, you'll start to have that whole world of gender expansiveness just pop up right before your eyes because it's already there. We're just not trained to see it. Um, so I would, I would encourage my cis colleagues to, um, even if you are the most cisgender person that has ever lived, really spend some time with, with broad conceptions of gender and specifically how you came into yours. What does it mean? How is it, how is it normalized? How is it transgressive? Um, and how do, you, how do you on a daily basis move through the world in gendered ways? Because we, we all do to some degree. Um, I think taking the, the philosophical steps to start to unpack gender conceptually in a, in a large, on a large scale sort of universal way um, will go really, really far in helping you understand um, the importance of celebrating trans identities and, and the spectrum of trans brilliance that, that exists in our world. You just have to practice seeing it. And if I uh, can turn that question on its head, um, first of all, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it seems like um, the resources are published. They exist. Everyone knows the best practices. Everyone knows that, uh, you know, ensemble names should be gender inclusive if they're meant to be, you know, what, whatever. Everyone knows the things. And now it's just time to just do them. Um, and so I appreciate that. And so if I can offer the inverse of that question, um, we trans people put so much energy uh, out into the world trying to make things that are more hospitable for us. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just for a moment put some energy back into the trans community. Um, what are some things that you would say to your trans colleagues? I mean, trans colleagues who are currently in community arts organizations, but also um, trans colleagues who are younger than you and, you know, maybe undergrad or younger. Um, what are some like words of healing that you might offer to trans musicians? Maybe also what I need to hear right now, <laughs> which is keep going. Just keep going. Find the places and the people and the things that give you resilience, that give you grounding and healing and just keep going. That every day, <laughs> every day comes and we have this choice. And I just ask you to just keep going. Make it one day farther, make it one task farther into your day, but just keep going. Thank you. You're such a gift. And that's what I needed to hear now too. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> 
one task farther. That's all we need. Just keep going. Even a month after this interview, I think that's still such important wisdom for all of us. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that they said that. Just keep going. I think Eric has such a wealth of experience at all levels of the choral field, from community ensembles to educational choirs and university teaching. And I think that this wealth of experiences has given them a really comprehensive view of what trans justice looks like for choral professionals and organizations. I really appreciated their point that the real gift of trans expertise can't be appreciated until basic gender pedagogies around pronouns, gendered language, facilities, etc. becomes normalized. Right. I love the way that they talked about this. Like, trans people have so much to offer, and frankly, there's so much that we are offering, but we can't even start to talk about that if we can't even get in the room. They said this so brilliantly, and I'm so grateful for their brilliance and leadership in our field. Let's keep going. This has been another experience with Engender. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced as a contribution to the Coral Commons and hosted by Nikki Manlove and Brad Dumont. You can find more episodes of this series alongside other progressive and disruptive content, as well as a schedule of virtual events by visiting our website at www.thecoralcommons.com. We welcome all questions, comments, contributions, and feedback. If you'd like to engage with the Coral Commons or the Engender series more intentionally, please reach out to us through any of our networks. Music for today's podcast was adapted from and will be free by Them Youth Ensemble. Thanks again, and see you next time. <laughs>